build character, to build hope, hope that we know will not let us down, Father God. Thank you, God, for continuing to work in our lives in all kinds of ways, even when we don't recognize it. Thank you for your presence here this morning. I pray that you'd continue to hang out with us, that you'd continue to be in our midst as we dive into your word and, and dig into your scripture, and God, that you would bring out some truths this morning that are not only relevant, but applicable, God, that you would, you would shake some of us up this morning and help us to realize, God, the, the things that you're stirring in our hearts and in our lives, that we would be open to hearing, God, and again, that, that the words that I speak this morning wouldn't be my words, it wouldn't be just words I wrote on a paper, God, but they would be your truth flowing through me. We thank you and praise you, and in your name we pray, we all said, amen. All right. So, hey, my name is Ian. I'm the family life pastor here at Epicenter. Don't, don't, don't sit down yet. We didn't read the Bible. Hold on. I, I'm going to go. I'm going to get there quick, all right? But I'm the family life pastor here at Epicenter. Pastor Mark is out of town. We're spending some time with family this morning, and that means that I get the awesome opportunity to share the word with you. Uh, I am always so thankful for, for Pastor Mark entrusting me with this, with this stage and this microphone and this opportunity to to be used by God in this way. And I'm thankful to each of you as well for not walking out the door when you, when you saw that I was up here because I, I, I believe that God has a word for us this morning. I really do. And it's, it's we're going to extend our series meant for more. Uh, we were supposed to close it down last week, but as, as I was praying and seeking God, I, I kind of felt like we needed to hang out here one more week with a message called, I'll Trade You. And if, you, if you've been here for a little while, you know that Meant for More is, is not only our theme for 2020 here at Epicenter Church, but it's what we want to be about both, as, both individually and collectively. We know that we were meant for more. We know that God has more for each of us in store for 2020 and collectively. Again, as a church, we, wanna, we want more this year. And not just more people in, in our building and not just more uh, more contributions in our offering, but we want more life change. We want more lives that are touched by the love and grace of Jesus and turned around for his glory. As individuals, we want you to grow more in your faith than you ever have before. We want you to find more opportunities to be used by God than you've ever experienced up till now. We, we, want, we believe that we were meant for more, and that's what this year is all about. In Genesis 25, verses 29 through 24, it tells the story of two twins, Esau and Jacob. These are the sons of Isaac and the grandsons of Abraham. They're some of the first children of God's promise to Abraham to give him a nation of descendants that would one day produce a Messiah. It says, starting in verse 29, one day when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau arrived home from the wilderness exhausted and hungry. Esau said to Jacob, I'm starved. Give me some of that red stew. This is how Esau got his other name, Edom, which means red. All right, Jacob replied, but trade me your rights as a firstborn son. Look, I'm dying of starvation, said Esau. What good is my birthright to me now? But Jacob said, first, you must swear that your birthright is mine. So Esau swore an oath, thereby selling all his rights as the firstborn to his brother Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and lentil stew. Esau ate the meal, then got up and left. He showed contempt for his rights as the firstborn. I'm going old school today because apparently the iPad I was using is one of those that goes from, zero to, uh, from 100 to zero in 20 minutes. 
so bear with my paper turning. But at first glance, you can be seated, by the way, I'm sorry. If you if you've read through this story, even if you've never heard this story before or don't know the background or aren't even sure what a birthright is, we can read this story and we know that something feels off. Like, like there's, this is not a good trade for one of these two parties. Somebody here is getting ripped off. Without any background knowledge at all, it kind of seems to us in our brain that trading a birthright for a bowl of bean soup is not an even exchange. I'm a, I'm a pretty big basketball fan, especially the NBA. I do watch college, so I'm sorry, Carolina fans, for last night. I, I am a, I'm a Carolina fan more than Duke, for sure, but like I said, more, more, more NBA. Let's, let's not get too far down that rabbit trail this morning. And, and, and this past Thursday was the trade deadline in the NBA, and for, for many years, that's been kind of like a holiday for me. Uh, I love watching Twitter to see who's getting traded and what my team is or isn't doing. Uh, I love seeing how the landscape of the league looks different after the dust settles. In fact, once I realized that I was too slow and too unathletic to, to accomplish my first life dream of playing in the NBA, my very second life dream was to be a general manager in the NBA, to run a team, to be the guy who does the trades. Even now, when I, when I play NBA 2K video games, the very first thing I do is not load up a game to play, but go to the rosters and make a bunch of trades and transactions, because I just, I love trades. And so the trade deadline in the NBA is usually one of my favorite days, but not this year. Uh, because this year it turns out that my favorite team, which is unfortunately the Detroit Pistons, uh, they traded one of their two best players and my son Liam's favorite player ever for what, for basically nothing. Like they, they, this may not mean much to you, but they got back two scrubs who were on expiring contracts in like the 54th pick in some draft like three or four years ago, three or four years from now, for an NBA All-Star and the guy who was the leading rebounder in the league. If you think, if, as I think about this, I think I'd rather have the bowl of bean soup than what they actually got back in this trade. And, and, and while I understand that this team made that trade for logistical and financial reasons that would be way too boring to get into right now for anybody, uh, when I thought about that trade, I just, I felt bad. I felt like that's, unfortunately, again, that's my favorite team, though. And they just, they got ripped off. They, they left something on the table. I was like, certainly there was more out there for this really good basketball player than a bowl of bean soup. Certainly, they could have gotten something different. But that got me thinking in more general terms about the, this idea of trades. And, and I realized that in a lot of ways, our lives are built on trades. We trade one thing and receive something else in exchange. We trade our effort and expertise in exchange, or at work in exchange for money. And then we trade that money in exchange for food or clothes or experiences or whatever other stuff we want or can afford. If you're in school, you trade your time and energy for an education. At the gym, you trade blood, sweat, and tears, if you're me, emphasis on tears, for hopefully some sort of gains or, or, or different uh, you know, body stature, stature, I can't say that word, you know what I'm talking about. All right, if you're a child, you trade obedience for privileges. If you're a parent, you trade privileges for obedience. And I understand that that dynamic is a little bit more complex than that, but on the surface, we can, we can understand that. If you're married, you trade compromise and compliance with your spouse's wishes for peace in your home. And if you own a dog like mine, you trade treats for not having to clean up poop off the floor all the time. Right, and different things have different value to different people. 
I might be willing to trade $100 for a pair of shoes that you would only trade $20 for, but you might be willing to trade $5,000 for a car that I would only trade $3,000 for, or if it's a Ford, $3 for. <laughs> my dad worked 35 years at General Motors, so I'm like obligated to hate Ford for the rest of my life. But it just depends on how you assign value and what things you're assigning value to. Growing up, my mom would trade hours of her time clipping coupons in order to have the opportunity to trade less money when it came time to buy groceries at the grocery store. And as a child, I used to kind of roll my eyes and be like, why are you wasting your time doing that? And now I just had, uh, we just had our third child a few weeks ago, and now I need a new pair of scissors. Um, you know, we basically spend our whole lives making trades, often angling to win the deal or come out ahead. We don't, we don't usually think of it in these terms, but every deal we make in life, from taking a job to signing a lease to getting married to going to college to buying a car to every other transaction that we ever take part in, we want to feel like we got a fair shake in that deal. We want to make sure that we didn't leave something on the table that we weren't taken advantage of. And, and, and you know, that, that term, leaving something on the table, is, is all about, you know, can I walk away from this trade or this transaction feeling like I got at least what I deserved from the trade? And when we don't, we feel like we've been bamboozled or like we've left something on the table. And we, we, we all assign value in different ways, but if we're not careful, we can find ourselves trading long-term value for short-term pleasure. And I don't just mean the trade that I make when I trade five slices of pizza tonight for two extra pounds next week. There's a spiritual component to many of the trades that we make each and every day. And it's easier than you might think to overlook the value of what we're trading. How many times have we traded the opportunity to spend more time with God for watching one more episode of the show that we're binging or sleeping a few more minutes. I'm not trying to condemn anybody because that's me. I do it all the time. How many times have we traded the opportunity to share the love of Jesus with someone or invite them to church in exchange for the chance to avoid a potentially awkward conversation? That's me. But what happens more often than we wish it would in life is we undervalue what God has given us or called us to, and so we leave more on the table. If we're meant for more, then that means that if we're willing to walk in the plan and the purpose that God has created for, we'll have access to that more. And yet too often we make these minor or casual trades in our lives that, that don't exclude us from God's love and don't even take us outside of his will, but we make an exchange that leaves some of that more on the table. And in the moment, we don't even realize what we're sacrificing because we don't properly value what we've been given, what we've been blessed with. We don't understand the weight and worth of God's love and his purpose for our lives. And so it becomes very easy to trade that for other things and leave more on the table. Esau and Jacob were born to Isaac, the only son of Abraham and Sarah, and his wife Rebekah. After 20 years of trying, 
Verse 22 tells us that the two boys struggled with one another while they were still in their mother's womb, so much so that she asked God, hey, why is this happening to me? What is going on in there? And God answered her in verse 23 by saying, your son, the sons in your womb will become two nations. From the very beginning, the two nations will be rivals. One nation will be stronger than the other, and your older son will serve your younger son. Essentially, God is saying to Rebekah, that her younger son would one day, in God's timing, receive many of the rights and responsibilities traditionally reserved for the firstborn son. But he provides no details on how or when this will occur. He doesn't even say if it's going to be Jacob himself or the, the nation that rises from Jacob's descendants. He just says someday, at some point, your younger son will receive many of the blessings and responsibilities traditionally reserved for the firstborn son. And he leaves it at that. That's my promise to you. So remember that as we go on a little bit later in this message. Verses 24 through 26 explain the story of the twins' birth. And when the time came to give birth, Rebecca discovered that she did indeed have twins. The first one was very red at birth and covered with thick hair like a fur coat, so they named him Esau. Then the other, twins the other twin was born with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so they named him Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when the twins were born. First of all, and I mean no offense to, to anyone who's found themselves in this situation, but like I said, I just, we just had our third child, and I'm 30, not even 35 years old, and when I wake up in the morning, I feel 60. <laughs> so I have no desire to, to, to ever know what it would be like to become the father of twin boys at the age of 60 years old. And then secondly... These guys work really hard to name their kids. See, my wife Tiana and I, when we, each time we've had a child, we've spent weeks or even months kind of debating and going back and forth on what to name our kid. Like, we look into the meanings, we look in family tradition and, and kind of find the perfect name for, for each of our children. But these guys, they, the, the first baby comes out and they're like, oh, he's got a lot of hair. Let's name him Harry. <laughs> like, seriously, that's what the word Esau means is Harry. But then they do one better because Jacob comes out holding on to Esau's heel and they, oh, we'll name this one heel catcher. Like literally, they named their kid after a common phrase of that time that essentially meant to be a deceiver or a con man. Like if you're a heel catcher, you're not really to be trusted because you might try to get over on somebody. And so Harry and con man grew up <laughs> and they became very different people. Verse 27 tells us that Esau became a skillful hunter. He was an outdoorsman, but Jacob had a quiet temperament, preferring to stay at home. Now listen, I don't know about you, but as a 100% certified introvert, when I says Jacob preferred to stay at home, I felt that. Okay? I, I'm what you might call an indoorsman. All right? Like, I love the outside. That's great. That's wonderful. But there, there's, sometimes there's too much nature, and it's trying to eat you. So, so... I'm an indoorsman because in the, the, the TV is indoors and the air conditioning is indoors and the bed and the pillows are indoors. But it's important to understand here that when this says that Jacob had a quiet temperament, it doesn't, your translation might say that he was mild, but it doesn't mean that he's soft or weak or timid. It actually means that he's more of a well-rounded person with lots of different interests, whereas Esau is like hunt, 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 kill, kill, eat, eat, hair. Like, but ja so Jacob's more well-rounded. So you got Esau, right, this rugged outdoorsy dude who's, who's his father's favorite because his father 
Isaac loves to eat all of the game, that he, the wild game he brings back from his hunts. And then you've got Jacob, the con man, the quiet, more well-rounded indoorsman. And Jacob was his mother's favorite, probably at least in part because of the promise that God had given to her about his future. And if I had time, I would tell you that this is a case study for the dangers of having a favorite child. And the furthest you should ever go with having a favorite child is just, you know, for example, like my favorite kid is whichever one is annoying me least in that moment. <laughs> and that's, that's, you shouldn't go much farther than that, but we'll, we'll save that for another day. But in verses 29 through 30, we see the major trade that begins to take shape between Jacob and Esau. And we begin to see the importance of paying attention to the trades we make in life and the value that we place on things. It says, one day when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau arrived home from the wilderness, exhausted and hungry. Esau said to Jacob, I'm starved. Give me some of that red stew. So Esau comes barging in this tent after a long day of hunting, and he's tired and he's hungry, and he's so tired and hungry, in fact, that the literal translation of verse 30 is, please let me swallow that red red. Like, he's so hungry, he can't even remember the name for soup. He, he, he's, he's barging in here. I imagine, like, this big, red, hairy hulk, like, me hungry now. Me want eat red soup. <laughs> and ultimately, though, whether he realizes it or not, Esau has found himself in a moment of weakness. See, he knows what he wants, in this case, the red soup, and he, he wants it right now. He wants it so badly, in fact, that he doesn't much care how he gets it. He has placed such a high level of value on the instant gratification of his immediate desires that he's willing to trade anything to get it. And ultimately, that's how sin works. When we value what we want right now over anything and everything else, it's how Adam and Eve allowed themselves to be convinced to eat the forbidden fruit. It's how King David found himself entangled in a web of adultery, deceit, and murder. It's how Moses missed out on seeing the promised land because he struck the rock in anger instead of, instead of speaking to it in obedience. And it's how you and I so often find ourselves ensnared in the trap of sin. We can't see value past the moment. Esau finds himself in a position where at that exact moment nothing is more valuable than the red soup. He is trading living in the moment for living for the moment. See, living in the moment is a principle that I believe that Jesus taught us. He taught us to not worry about tomorrow, but to keep our eyes open for the opportunities around us to impact change and share God's love. Living in the moment, being present and available to those around us, it's a great way to live. It's something that I have to continue to remind myself. Be present, be available, be in the moment. Don't be so obsessed with what you have to do tomorrow or what you didn't get done today. Live in the moment. But here Esau has traded living in the moment for living for the moment. Living for the moment means that nothing else matters beyond right now. What I want, what I need, how I feel in this moment is the only important thing. Who cares about how this decision will affect my future or even how similar decisions have affected me in the past? This is what I want to do. It's where I want to be. It's how I want to live, who I want to be with. And I don't really care about anyone or anything else. And that's the lie that sin tells us. It says, it'll be okay. Just get what you want. Chase the high. Feel happy. Experience pleasure. Nothing matters more than right now. And if we're honest, sin is fun for a little while. It is pleasing for a few moments. 
But then the moment passes and we're left with destruction and we realize that what we've done is traded a few moments of fun and pleasure for a whole lot of devastation. The goal of sin is to convince us to trade what's right for what's right now. To trade our purpose in life for a moment of pleasure and to trade faithfulness to God for a fleeting moment of self-gratification. And when we buy into this lie about sin, we leave more on the table. See, we leave the more that we were meant for on the table because we trade all that in for the opportunity to do what we want right now. We leave more opportunities to be used by God, more opportunities to, to share God's love with others. We leave all of that on the table because the only thing that matters to us is right now. And it does not disqualify us from being used by God again in the future. Absolutely not. And we'll talk more about that in a little while. But I need you to understand that when we trade living in the moment for living for the moment, we're leaving some of the more that we were meant for on the table. And Esau finds himself in a situation where nothing matters but what he wants right now. He's traded living in the moment for living for the moment. And now he's willing to trade anything, even everything, to get what he wants so Jacob replies in verse 31, all right, but trade me your birthright as the firstborn son. Look, I'm dying of starvation, said Esau. What good is my birthright to me now? Again, Esau can't see past the moment. He's hungry. He wants that red soup, and his brother has made him an offer. Now, you and I, separated from the hunger and the fatigue and the intensity of the situation, we can read this and we can know that's a bad deal. When I read it, I want to almost scream, no, don't do it, Esau. Don't be a dummy. But when he says, what good is my birthright to me now? He's revealing a mindset that many of us struggle with, too. The obstacle in front of him seems so great that it can never be overcome. So what good is anything else to me now? He's leaving more on the table because he can't see past where he is in this moment. In that sense, many of us in this room can identify with Esau on a different level. We make bad trades because the intensity of the situation we find ourselves in feels too great to ever overcome. We say, look, I've been diagnosed with a disease. What good is prayer to me now? Look, my marriage is falling apart. What good is faithfulness to me now? Look, I'm struggling with depression. What good is hope to me now? Look at all the obstacles that I'm facing. What good is trusting Jesus to me now? We can't see the solution because the problem in front of us feels insurmountable. And when we can't see past the situation we find ourselves in, we begin to trade trust for worry and hope for despair. We undervalue the purpose we were created for and the calling that God has placed on our lives, and thereby we undervalue our own self-worth in Christ. When we can't see the value in our purpose, our calling, or ourselves, we will continue making bad trade after bad trade, falling further and further into hopelessness until we reach a point that feels like there is no return. But it's important to understand that in this situation, even though Esau can't see anything else beyond this momentary solution he's obsessed with, he had other options. We need to take our blinders off in life because Esau, there was nothing that prevented him from going into the kitchen and fixing himself a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. 
He could have waited like two minutes and said, when his mom came back and said, Mom, Jacob won't give me none of that soup he made. You know, the mom like, Jacob, give your brother some of that soup. Share. But he couldn't see past the difficulty or the situation that he was in right now. And so he said, what good is anything else if I can't see a way out of this? So I want to remind you this morning that God will always give us a way out. It may not be obvious and it may not be immediate. But he tells us over and over again that he will never leave us and forsake us. He will be with us always, even to the end of the age. And so any situation that we find ourselves in, there's always a way out. So we have to remember the value of what we've been given. So that, it, so that we're not willing to trade it in. For momentary pleasure and leave more on the table. Jacob says in verse 33, first you must swear that your birthright is mine. So Esau swore an oath, thereby seeing, selling all his rights as the firstborn to his brother Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and lentil stew. Esau ate the meal, then got up and left. He showed contempt for his rights as the firstborn. I read this passage like eight times this week at least. And then this morning I read it a ninth time and God showed me something I hadn't seen the other eight times. It's just further proof that, Le that Esau left more on the table because it says that after he swore his oath, after he made this trade, after he, traded, he, he, he made this great sacrifice, then Jacob gave Esau some bread and lentil stew. The bread was there the whole time. But all Esau could see was the, was the soup or the, the problem or the situation. And when the text says that Esau showed contempt for his birthright, it doesn't mean that he hated his birthright or wanted nothing to do with his family. It means that he didn't understand or appreciate what he truly had. He undervalued it to the extent that he didn't realize what he was trading away. He saw his birthright as something that was so insignificant it was worth nothing more than a bowl of bean soup. And it's the same thing that happens to us when we lose sight of who we are or who we've been called to be in Christ. As people who've been given the opportunity to be adopted into the family of Jesus, we have a spiritual birthright of our own. It comes with complete acceptance by God, redemption from our sin, true and total forgiveness, the riches of God's grace, and so much more. And yet we show contempt for it when we fail to acknowledge its value. See, we show contempt for our birthright when we trade our worth in Christ for the lie that our sin and struggles have made us worthless. We show contempt for our birthright when we believe that our shame is too great for God to forgive us. We show contempt for our birthright when we trade the purpose and plan for which we were created for the lie that we'll never be good enough, that we'll never measure up. We, trade, we show contempt for our birthright when we continually trade what is right for what is right now. When we trade the standard God has called us to for momentary pleasure. And when we trade the chance to be used by God for living for the moment. We show contempt for our birthright when we leave more on the table by failing to realize the value of what we've been given. Esau's trade in that culture was irreversible. He swore an oath that could never be undone. 
But the beauty of Jesus is how, no matter how many bad trades we've made in our lives, no matter how much devastation we've made, we've left in our wake because of our tendency to live for the moment, no matter how many times we've showed contempt for our birthright, God can still restore us. All we have to do is ask. But all of this is only one side of the coin. It turns out Esau wasn't the only one who made a bad trade that day. If we go back and look at verse 31, we'll see that Jacob also made some trades that were just as bad or not, if not worse, I'm sorry, than those that Esau made. Verse 31 says that Jacob saw his brother in a moment of weakness, and he traded the chance to show him love and mercy for the opportunity to take advantage of him and get something that he wanted. All right, Jacob replied, but trade me your rights as a firstborn son. When he saw how desperate Esau was for some of that red soup, he decided to manipulate his brother into surrendering his most valuable possession. And in this moment, Jacob made a trade that many of us make all the time, many times without even realizing it. He traded the trust in God's promises for the opportunity to take matters into his own hands. He traded God's promises for his own plan. If God's promised us something, we should trust that it will come true in his time, not try to make it happen in our own time. But I can't count the number of times that I've tried to rush God's promises by trying to get things done myself and ultimately ended screwing things up even more. If God's promised to provide for us, then why is it that the first thing we do when something unexpected happens is not usually to turn to God for peace and comfort and strength and reassurance, but rather we try to figure out how to solve the problem ourselves. I know I'm not the only one who's ever thought that God needed help to make things happen. When we trade God's promise for our own plan, we're always going to make things worse than what they were supposed to be. See, Jacob still got the birthright that he was promised, but not in the way that it was intended. If you read through the rest of the book of Genesis, you'll see that Jacob ultimately had to go through another level of deception in order to get the birthright on his terms. Then he had to run away from home and never see his parents again and spent a large chunk of his life, 20 years or more, looking over his shoulder, wondering if today was the day that his brother, Isaac, or his brother Esau came to kill him in revenge. That's no way to live, and it's not the way that God had intended for Jacob to live. But because he traded God's promises for his own plans, he caused things to be not as what they were supposed to be. See, when we rush to try to take things into our own hands, to work our own plan, God can and does still use those situations for our good. And he still gets us to where we were ultimately supposed to be, but there will often be a lot more twists and turns than he intended, and there will usually be an element of struggle and concern that we were never meant to have to experience. And all of this is a product of trading God's promise for our own plans. We leave more on the table when we make, try to make things happen ourselves but because we're showing God and the world that we don't trust his promises as much as we trust our own plan. We're again devaluing that which God has offered us and trading it in for something that's worth nowhere near the same. But that's not the only trade that Jacob made that day. When he chose to obtain through manipulation and deceit something that God had already said was his, he traded surrender for self-righteousness. He went from seeing God's promise as a blessing and a gift to seeing it as something that he deserved, something that was rightfully his. I can see 
Jacob's sitting there in the tent, and this isn't direct from Scripture. This is kind of my, the way that I imagine it happening. But I see Jacob kind of sitting there in the tent looking at his brother Esau, starving and begging for some soup and thinking, you know what, man? I've been so good all these years. I help my mother and father. I'm obedient. Esau's out there hunting and philandering all the time. I deserve that birthright more than him anyway. Look how much better of a person I am than he is. I follow all the rituals and traditions. Does he even know the significance of his birthright? You know what? I'm going to take it from him because I deserve it. God said I would have it eventually, so I might as well just get it now. He traded an attitude of surrender for one of self-righteousness. He gave up following God's commands and trusting in God's promises so he could obtain and accomplish something that he had decided that he deserved. He had rights to the blessing of the birthright, but he no longer viewed it as a blessing, but something that was owed to him. And thus, he devalued the promise he'd been given. Almost everyone who's decided to follow Jesus has made this trade at least once in our lives. When we first surrender to Christ, we're so thankful for all that we have, and we're humbled by the, 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 the bigness of his love and his grace. But over time, we start doing the right thing, and we, we start following the rules, and we become good people, and we go to church regularly, and we start to deceive ourselves into thinking that we kind of deserve to be saved because look how much better we are than those people. We trade our initial attitude of surrender for one of self-righteousness. And once we've done this, it can be easy to justify all kinds of actions and behaviors. Because after all, we're good people and we deserve to have what we want. But we leave more on the table when we trade seeing God's provision as a blessing for seeing it as something that is small enough that we could earn it. When we live this way, when we allow ourselves to be convinced that we're somehow better or more deserving of God's love and grace and blessings because we sin less or at least less publicly than the people who've already decided, who have not yet surrendered to, to God, when we trade God's promise for our own plans and our surrender for self-righteousness, we're forgetting the core message of the gospel of Jesus. Paul wrote in Romans 3.23 that everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. But in verse 24, he says, yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. Paul expands on this concept in Ephesians chapter 2, 8 and 9 when he writes, God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. When we trade surrender for self-righteousness, we devalue God's grace because we shrink it down to something that we can comprehend and understand and even think that we've earned or deserved. The beauty of following Jesus, the beauty of the gospel is that no matter how many times we have traded our own desires for doing what God has called us to do, we still don't deserve God's love, but it's still given freely. And no matter how many times we've traded God's will for our own selfish, sinful, destructive desires, we're, no, we're still not disqualified from his grace. He still offers it freely. A theologian named Hanley Moole put it, put it like this. He said, prostitutes, murderers, and liars have all fallen short. But so have you. They may be at the bottom of a well and you at the top of a mountain, but, they are, but you are no more able to touch the stars than they are. 
It doesn't matter how good of a person we are. It doesn't matter how long we've been a Christian. When we trade our attitude of surrender for one of self-righteousness, we are devaluing the gift of God's grace and the fact that he chooses to use us in spite of ourselves by shrinking it down into something that we think that we could earn. Worship team, you guys can come back up here if you're not already, if you're not already back there. Every single one of these trades we've talked about today, we're leaving some of the more that we were meant for on the table. When we trade living in the moment for living for the moment, when we trade what's right for what's right now, we're devaluing the call that God has placed on our lives and trading it for momentary satisfaction. But when we trade God's promise for our plans, when we trade an attitude of surrender for one of self-righteousness, we're devaluing the free gift of grace and salvation that God has offered to us all. And even in spite of all of that, whether you've made three trades like this or 3,000, there's still more on the table for you. Here's what I mean. God made the most lopsided trade in history just for us. He traded the innocent life of his son Jesus for all of our sin and shame and death. He traded death for life and then overcame death by rising again three days later. Because of that, we now have direct access to the throne room of God where we can make all kinds of lopsided trades. See, there is more on the table for us. We just have to be willing to trade for it. Because of Jesus' sacrifice, we can trade our worry for his peace. Because of God's love and grace, we can trade our weakness for his strength. We can trade our pain, our past, and our problems for his plan, his purpose, and his promise. We can trade our condemnation for his grace. We can trade our desperation for his hope. We can trade our old life for the new life that is only found in Jesus. If you would, please stand to your feet. There's more. There's more on the table for us. No matter how many times we've made these trades and left some of the more we were meant for on the table, there's still, right now today, there's more on the table for us. And all we have to do is trade it in. We can, we can reverse everything. We can trade back our self-righteousness for an attitude of surrender. We can trade back what we want right now for doing what's right in the eyes of God. We can trade back our past for his promise. There's more on the table for you. You can trade your sickness for his healing. You can trade your desperation for his hope. 
with every head bowed and every eye closed.